Okay, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day that we can come and hear your word and hear your voice through it again. And Father, that our ears would be wide open today, our spiritual hearts ready to hear and learn and apply and do all that you would call us to do, Father. And again, we thank you. Pray for Steve and his message today. Pray again for the power of your word through your word spoken, Father God, that we would be people of the word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all the fathers in here. I'm still in Romans 6, so you can start flipping the pages to get there. I don't know if this is the last lesson I'll pull out of Romans 6 or not. We'll see what the Lord, how the Lord works on my own heart this week and, and what else might still be contained in the depths of the words that the Holy Spirit had Paul pen that we call Romans 6. See if there's more spiritual truth to mine out of it after this week. So this will be the third lesson in this series from Romans chapter 6. Just for a reminder, I am using a verse in Romans 6, verse 5, where Paul talks about our being believers, our being united in Christ, having the Holy Spirit in it, that that's a truth that brings with it spiritual truth and spiritual realities. So we're looking for those spiritual realities. We're looking for results of our spiritual union with Christ. Two weeks ago, the first result was that the resurrection is the dynamic event defining our life in Christ. Last week, we looked at the second result of our spiritual union with Christ, and that was that believers have been given a new spiritual condition received by divine favor, or what we normally would call grace. This week, the third result of our spiritual union with Christ, our uniting with Christ, is this. Believers are enslaved to righteousness. A result of our being united with Christ is that believers are enslaved to righteousness. And I pull that out of verse 22 of chapter 6, where Paul writes, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So we're going to look at today the theology of slavery, theology of the fall. And when I say theology of slavery, it's not as, as we know it as man-based slavery. This is slavery of our will, is biblical theology of slavery, slavery of the will. And so what I hope to do today is take us through a little theological journey. Much of this you probably already know well, but it's always good to be reminded of truths of our prior life. As we looked at last week, humans fit in one of two silos. We're either in Adam or we are in Christ. And there's truths that go with those realities. Nineteen times in Romans 6, Paul uses words that were the language of the slave market of the time in connection with our will. He uses words like the easy one, slave, enslaved, freed, master, obedience, domain, all words that came out of the context of the time of the slave market. But the context in its connection to us in Romans chapter 6 is our will. It's our will. We were enslaved to sin when we were in Adam, so we could say, thanks a lot, Adam. We could blame Eve. She's the one that 
took that fruit, right? So we could say, thanks a lot, Adam. It was really his fault. But what we want to look at is what was the radical nature of our former enslavement to sin if we are truly in Christ? What was our enslavement to sin all about? Because Paul writes in, in chapter 6 that we were once enslaved to sin. If you have Romans 6 open, I'm going to start with verse 6. And 7, Paul writes, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So like I said, we're either one or the other. And that's a biblical truth. People walking this earth, they're either in Adam or they're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you are a slave to sin. If you are in Christ, Paul's telling us, you are now a slave to righteousness. If we're a slave to sin, or if we once were, we had a slave master, Satan. If we're enslaved to righteousness, we have a slave master, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we can categorize all people in one of those silos of truth. And one thing about our prior life in Adam is this. Different from what we would think of as human slavery, it's against the will. When we were in bondage to Satan and we were slaves to sin, it was not a holding of us against our will. We were there because that was the nature we had. We were there because that's what we loved more than anything else was sin and more sin. Even though many of you may not see it that way, that you lived a pretty good life prior to hearing the gospel and coming to Christ. So why weren't those in Adam being held against their will? Well, simply, fallen man rejects God's rule, and by default, when you reject God's rule, you are coming under Satan's rule. And Satan has been given the power over this domain that we now live in. Luke 4, if you wanted to turn there, otherwise I'll just read it reminds us that God gave Satan control over this domain that we walk in, whether we're walking through it in Adam or in Christ. He still is the ruler of the domain of the earth. Luke 4, verses 5 and 6, Jesus is in the desert being tempted by Satan, and it says, And he, Satan, led him, or Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be all yours. And we know Jesus' reply to that. But the issue is what Jesus didn't reply. He didn't dispute Satan saying, this is my space here. You're in it. I own it. In those verses, Satan's making not only a declaration about himself, but a declaration about his relationship to the fallen world that we live in, that we exist in. And Jesus doesn't contest Satan's claim of control over this world because God has permitted Satan to be the ruler of this world for now. God has permitted Satan's rule but limited Satan's role because despite all Satan may do, God is sovereign over him. In the end, God will receive all glory for anything Satan may do. And in that, while we walk through his domain, in Christ, 
we need to remember that we are God's own, and God will protect his own. 1 John 5, 18 through 20 reminds us of that truth, that we are under God's protection at this time. 1 John 5, 18 it says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So while we are united in Christ, believers on this earth, we have a standing in Christ in this world or Satan's domain. Believers are kept from Satan and that they can never fall again under his enslaving mastery. And I'm not saying we don't fall into sin, because we do. What I'm saying is that only God possessed the sovereign power to change our nature from its fallen state to its new state of spiritual life. Satan does not possess that power to change us back. Yet because believers in Christ exist within the realm of Satan's control, evil still continues to abound around us, and it seems to be increasing, and it will get worse. And as I was writing the, the notes for this message this week, I had the radio on, which I shouldn't have done because I was listening to the news, and I was not happy with the news I was hearing as many of us aren't. So we can complain. I just want to make this sidebar note. We can complain about our government and the evil we might think they're doing, and we can't wait for another voting day where we get our chance to vote for someone else. But I want you to think about this. Whether or not you vote for someone from a different party label, if they're also in Adam, you're voting for the same people. Okay? In the end, you're voting for the same people. Voting is... Beneficial. Praying for the salvation of our leaders is important. So we have this division of man. And today being Father's Day, talk, I'll talk about fatherhood here. This division of man being in Adam or in Christ, we have a spiritual father in one of those two silos that man exists in. If you're in Adam, Satan is your father. Anybody in here named Luke? I, I won't go there. Luke, Satan is your father. No, never mind. Not going to go there. Either Satan is the father of your fallen nature or God is the father of your new risen nature in Christ. 1 John 3, 8 tells us the one who practices sin is of or from or begat of who? The devil. The one who practices sin makes sin the ongoing course of their life their father is the devil. Next verse, 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God, though, practices sin or makes sin an ongoing practice of the course of their life because he is born of God. I came to faith in my early 30s. And yeah, I know I was a sinner. But I never thought of Satan as my father at that point in time. I can now look back, see biblical truth, understand it, but those today who are in Adam are not saved. You tell them that, they're going to go, what? Satan's my father? Where do you come up with that? Because they have no knowledge of the truth of God. Second Timothy 
tells us that. Second Timothy chapter two verses twenty five through twenty six. Second Timothy two twenty five through twenty six. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, who are in opposition, those who are in Adam. In gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snares, snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But if that was our first approach to someone who was unsaved, I think we're going to get a pretty quizzical look. Hey, dude, did you know your father is Satan? They don't know. Not until God leads them to repentance. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 gives us more background on that. It says Satan blinds the mind of the unbelieving. So God has given power over to Satan in this domain, in that regard too, to blind and deceive the mind of the unbelieving. So the issue is how did we get to this point? How did... Fallen man, all of us at one point in time become sin slaves, slaves of Satan, Father, Satan being our father. And to understand it right, we need to understand biblical anthropology well from a literal, grammatical, interpretive basis about what the Bible says about Adam and the fall. And it seems like as time goes on, the more we hold to certain truths, the more the world around us, the evangelical world, continues to slide away from those truths because these truths about Adam aren't widely held anymore as more and more take on a theistic evolutionary view of Genesis. Adam was created pre-fall, I mentioned this last week, with a spiritual state able not to sin and able to sin. Adam's fall resulted in a change in that condition. What was that change? Adam was able to sin, unable not to sin, was that change of state. He was enslaved to sin, unable to choose true righteousness, and man's will in Adam became unfree. Is that a word, unfree? I hope so. No English teachers in here, I hope. Man's... Man's will in Adam was unfree toward righteousness because we're literally shackled to sin and sin's master, Satan. In both states, man had free will. That's another issue that divides a lot of evangelicals. What exactly is free will? Man had free will, but that will was governed by its nature or its moral inclinations. Due to the fall, in God's eyes, man's motives are always impure. Always seeking his own creaturely glory and not the glory of the Creator. And resulting, and it resulted in a dead spiritual nature, and we possessed that at one time. Now in our salvation vocabulary, we call that being lost. Lost to God. But lost how? We were lost in that man had lost the capacity to choose autonomously for God's eternal purposes. We couldn't say no to sin. We could only say yes to it. Adam pre-fall was able to choose either good or evil. And then Adam's inclination was at that time yet untouched by sin. It was innocent. It was untainted. And also Adam at that time was, we have to remember this, man... Adam was not 
created by God to share in his attributes. We often speak of an attribute of God being that he is immutable. He's unchangeable. Let's just look at that one in general. God being immutable does not change. Adam, the creature, did not possess that attribute. Adam, or man, was mutable or changeable in nature. And when Satan tempted Eve, Adam was not away on business. He wasn't in the back 40, tending the garden. He watched and he heard, and therefore was guilty for his own disobedience, not himself being deceived, for God, he knew what God had said. And Adam's willful disobedience came with the severity of a death sentence. Two parts of death occurred as a consequence. We know this. Physical death came and spiritual death came. We get the physical very well. On the spiritual side, we lost the ability to not sin. And we gained the ability to only sin. That was man's mutability. He changed. His nature changed. And as biblical time goes on, the law comes along. The law is introduced, and it resulted in man striving to live according to the law. And that resulted in what Paul tells us in Romans 5, verses 12 and 3, sin being imputed to man's account. And it caused man to only sin all the more. So man became conscious of sin, he became overcome by sin, mastered by sin, and totally enslaved to sin. Adam acting on the behalf of all men. Man's nature corrupted. Man could not will towards righteousness, and we became God's enemies. Not just enemies, but we became in enmity with God. And there's a difference, being God and him being immutable. He cannot change. When that enmity began, God's never turning his back on our sin. His wrath is not going to be removed. Justice must be served on our sin. And so that enmity is on every child of Adam due to God's absolute hatred of sin and his obligation to judge and punish the lawbreaker. There will never be reconciliation between one in Adam and God apart from Christ. Nahum, not a book that we normally go to for, for verses to quote, instead of reconciliation, there is ongoing war. Nahum 1 verse 2 reminds us, it says, The Lord is avenging and wrathful against sinners. And that, too, is not something that all of evangelicals hold today. They'd say, no, God loves everyone. Everyone is a child of God. But Scripture does not support that thought. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul tells us that pre-salvation, we were still enemies. So much so that it took a radical solution of the crucifixion to appease and turn God's wrath on sin for those who are saved through Christ. And the problem, I think, in many evangelical circles today is that many have stripped God of some of those attributes. They pick and choose which one of his attributes they want to like. And that's the God that they follow. I want to follow the God of love and mercy and grace and loving kindness. I don't know about that Old Testament God of wrath and judgment. That's not the God I want to serve, that I want to follow. And that's imbalanced. When you pick and choose which of God's attributes we want to hang on to, 
You can't do that. So what was the magnitude of the first sin? It was absolutely devastating on man. Man being mutable, lost the freedom of the will to believe in God and live holy. And that's not the same as saying that some did not believe in a God. No matter how they might try, their attempts at holiness were futile as their heart's motives were turned inward toward self. Apart from God's solution to that train wreck, man can will and man can run, but always in vain. In Adam, man's will is morally unfree to choose or decide for God. David put it clearly, Psalm 51, verse verse 5 He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin I was conceived. From our birth, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And that resulted in our being excluded from the life of God. If you want to turn to Ephesians 4, we'll look at that truth, that exclusion from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 says this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you will walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the fertility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with what? Greediness. They chase sin with greed. We were excluded from the life of God because of our hard hearts, and man gave himself over to the practice of sin greedily. So short of God's sovereign work and salvation, we are held in shackles to sin, and that sin master is Satan. Man's will was so enslaved that it possessed absolutely no power to righteousness. And again, I say this, it's a biblical truth not held by most evangelicals today that man's will is unfree to choose or decide for his own salvation apart from God calling and drawing him. And Scripture teaches us that there are five things, five things about the bondage of the will that's produced in fallen man's mind. If they claim to know God... It's only a definition of their mind's creation. It's not from biblical correctness. What are those five things? First one, fallen man cannot love the God Scripture reveals. When they hear of Scripture's claims about God's justice, his sovereignty, his wrath, again they go, that's not the God I want to follow. Those aren't the attributes of the God I love. Second thing that comes with the bondage of the will that's produced in fallen man is this, that fallen man cannot know the things of God. Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. Man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Their speculations about God were futile because their hearts were darkened by the fall. From the fall, and men exchanged truth for lives to serve self and not God. The third thing that fallen man can't do is obey or please God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So fallen man cannot obey or please God. The fourth thing fallen man cannot do is seek God. Romans 3.11. 
says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So what does that say about the fertility of being a seeker-sensitive church? John three nineteen and 20 tells us that unbelievers hate the light. They won't come near the light because they fear their deeds being exposed by the light. So if you're seeker-sensitive, you by necessity have to put the light away to make them happy to be in the church with you. The fifth thing that fallen man cannot do is change or reform himself to make himself right before God. Jeremiah 13, the leopard can't change his spots, but Jeremiah 2.22 says this, can't change the spots that are on the outside. You can't dig down deep into the soul and change the stains of sin. It says, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is always before me. So fallen man cannot clean himself of the results of the fall. So the results of the fall bring us to the conclusion of Paul in Romans 3.23. We all know this. All have sinned and fall short. So as all men are impacted by their changed nature, only the elect are impacted by grace or God's divine favor to change their condition. And it's all a sovereign work of God. We know that from John 6, just in, in one area of Scripture. No one can come unless drawn by God. Jesus said that. John 6.44, and in case we didn't quite get it, comes back in verse 65 of John 6, says it again, no one can come unless granted by God, because God is completely sovereign over salvation. God must remove that stony heart and replace it with a new heart of flesh. We must be born again from above. So as we get back into Romans 6, verses 16 through 18, it says this, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God regenerates the heart to new life. We're united with Christ. We are passed from one slave master to a new one. Overcome by the Spirit, man's slavery to sin, his will is now enslaved to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty is being freed from enslavement to sin. Liberty is being enslaved to true righteousness in God. So we are united together with Christ, and in that we have been overcome by a new master. A new Lord enters the scene. If you're back at Romans chapter 6, let's look at verse 22 again. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. And when did that exchange occur? At regeneration, indwelling Holy Spirit, our enslavement changed from one master to another. And the point I want to get down to is this. In that transaction, Scripture does not give us a plan B. It does not give us another option in that transaction. No middle ground. There's no undetermined time that one can claim in Scripture that says, I came to Christ to be saved, so he's my Savior Another day, I might get around to coming to him as Lord, and I'll change my life, stop the sin, and put it behind me. 
There is no plan B in Scripture. No middle ground. And so those today, and this is widely claimed today, that sanctification can be delayed. And they're very misleading to themselves and others. So let's transition away from enslavement to sin to our new enslavement in righteousness back in Romans 6. And we need to praise God for that enslavement to righteousness. But what I want to look at is what does a newly enslaved slave to righteousness do? Look at verse 19, Romans chapter 6. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So what does a newly enslaved slave to righteousness do? He presents his members, Paul says, for duty. What are his members he's talking about here? Well, you can talk, it's your hands, it's your feet. Don't walk towards sin, walk away from it. But it's not that superficial. It's talking about your mind, your emotions, your attitudes, your thoughts, your tongue, my tongue. I mean, not just make it all you, it's me too. We turn all of the parts away from sin. And turn to our new master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our brain, our tongue, our emotions, our eyes, our ears, all of our members. We line up daily before the Lord Jesus Christ reporting for duty. We line up daily for inspection and presentation. Paul uses that word, present yourself before your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So every... Slave of righteousness must learn their job, must report for duty, must do well to earn your master's approval. And what does Paul teach us is the job of those enslaved to righteousness? Five times in verses 13 through 19, five times Paul uses the, the Greek verb paristeme. Paristeme, translated to mean present be presented or to be presenting, metaphorically, it's this, to bring oneself into close and intimate fellowship. Close and intimate fellowship. In in the negative, he puts it in verse 13, we're no longer to bring ourselves into close intimacy with sin. And what don't we bring into close intimacy with sin? Our body parts, our members, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our tongue. Reminded me of something my wife used to sing to our girls when they were little, and and maybe other mothers here sang the same little biblical nursery rhyme, so I'll see if it finds a home. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Anyone know that one? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. The Father up above is looking down in love. My memory's better than I thought. Okay, Uh, so I thought of that as I was at this point during the week. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, and little ears, what you hear. But for the believer, it's a bit different. The intimacy we share with God, with, united with Christ, Holy Spirit in us, goes way beyond Him looking down on us. He's working out through us. It's that intimate. 
It's more like knowing from the inside out what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're seeing, what we're hearing all the time. So Paul says regarding sin, don't present any part of yourself to it. Positively, in the end of verse 13, it says because we, we are now alive to God spiritually, here's how we present. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. Present your members as parts or instruments of righteousness is what he's intending. What kind of instruments? Well, tools of warfare. There's a direct link here to Ephesians 6. We're either going to have an offensive or a defensive instrument. So recheck Ephesians 6 for the listing of those instruments. But the battle against sin, we have to admit, is tough for many. It is a battle. The war is on. They fight it day and night, and it gets tough. It makes some weary. And often, some may just want to give up, give in, go back to that old slave master. Not any different than the Israelites in the desert got weary of the travel. Lack of water, lack of meat. They got weary. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And I know some that have told me they're weary of their fight against sin. It's easier just to give in and go back. And sometimes in that, people blame God. They say, it's your fault you made me this way. Read James. The authority of Scripture in Romans 6 says to this person, no. I changed you at your regeneration. I planted you together with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection. So now you stand up. You turn back to me, that's called repentance, we walk my way. You have not given it enough effort that you would shed blood in your fight against sin. Paul says in verse 17 that we become obedient from the heart. And because of that obedience, that's where the strength comes to overcome and say no to our flesh. You're obedient from the heart so you can be disobedient to your own flesh. You can tell your flesh, no. No, we're not doing that. I have power over sin. So what does Paul mean exactly? Let's look at that verse, verse 17, I think it is. What are we obedient to? It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to what? That form of teaching. That form of teaching. What is Paul talking about there? Well, he's certainly talking about the gospel and all the truths of it, all the truth of Christ and everything that Christ had taught Paul. Paul's teaching them and us. It's the gospel and it's Christ's direct authority over us as our Lord. Who taught Paul? Jesus did. What does Paul teach us? What Jesus taught him. How to be a true disciple. And in Romans 6, the Holy Spirit gives Paul a new way for us to see what being a true, true disciple is. We're enslaved to righteousness. And so the point I want to make again is that there is no plan B. There is no plan B. There's no in-between state where Jesus is your Savior and not your Lord. Alternately, there is no space of time where you're walking with the Lord and then you fall into sin, and many call it a carnal state, and you stay there and don't come back out. There are many churches that teach that person is still saved. 
And that's not what the Bible teaches. We are enslaved to righteousness. So there's no waiting. There's no, there's no period of backsliding that is in unending carnality. Discipleship is the outcome of our salvation. Enslavement is the outcome of our salvation, according to Jesus, that we be committed to him as our Lord. And the point of discipleship is always a commitment to Christ as Lord. When the commitment is made and followed through with, it naturally results in what Paul writes in verse 22, sanctification. It's the natural outcome of that enslavement. And in that, in our discipleship, our enslaved discipleship, all other relationships that we might have become secondary. Remember what Christ wrote in Luke 14? We have to hate father and mother. Not literally, but we need to put him so far above every other relationship. He says, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Jesus goes on to say that you must be willing to deny yourself and subject yourself to Jesus. He's talking about our will, being enslaved to him. And that requires a radical heart change until we come to the gospel and God draws us to the truth of it. It's not happening. And we find God's will for us all through Scripture, and every time we do, and we realize, because we're convicted, there's an area of my life I haven't turned over to Christ yet. Here's the other the way my brain works. As I'm writing these things out, I remember things, so it's like turning over the keys and the title to that part of your life and saying, here, you've got to have this. You've got to take this away from me, because when I've got it, I'm not going to do right. And I can't tell you how many times I came home from a date with Carla and I was a minute late. I'm certain my watch was right. I was just one minute late. House was dark. I was down maybe the first or second stair down to the basement and the voice out of the darkness said, you're late. Hand over your keys. Not again. How long? Hand them over. I'll let you know when I'm done. I'll give them back. So my dad's voice came through the darkness every time he waited up. He never went to sleep. We've got to hand over the keys and the title of those areas of our life that we might still be holding out from him. There's no area of our life that is right to compartmentalize it, hold it away from Christ, whether it's our emotions, our attitudes, or our actions. When it's not holy in nature, it's not succumbing to the will of Christ, you've got to hand it over. Christ said something else in Luke 14, verse 33, we've got to give up all of our possessions. What possessions? Here's the big one. How about your time? Your time. Got to give it over. I don't have time. I don't have any time to give over to you. Yeah, you do. You've got to give it up, give it over. Your talents, your wealth, you give it up. Quit coveting it. You give it over to the Lord for his use. Jesus said, also, you have to take up my cross. So die to your own rights. Die to his sovereignty over your emotions and your attitudes. And, and it's his will and not yours. So we've been talking about enslavement. Did Jesus talk about enslavement of the will? I think he did. Verses that we're familiar with, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He said, put on my yoke, and it is an easy one to bear. And for the people hearing that at the time, putting on a yoke, they got that picture. They, bought, they got it clearly. It was used to harness the animal, control that animal, bring them into submission so that they could be used in labor on behalf of the master. 
So we put on that yoke, and it's an easy one to bear. We're to submit to Christ for the work he assigns us. To, that's a walk of righteousness. That's what we're yoked together to do as Christians. So when Jesus used the language of the yoke, it was symbolic of him saying to humbly be a follower. Give in, give up your fight of your will against mine. If you're a disciple, you humbly submit to him as the Lord of your life. So back in Romans 6, verse 19, present your members as slaves to do righteousness and it will result in sanctification. The process of sanctification will result wherever there has been a commitment of submissive obedience to Christ as Lord. And a saved man is one who has received Christ as Lord. Now what does that mean for us? The local church body here at Lakeside, I always have to pull it back to this. At the top of your bulletin, every single week, it's just the first few words here, it says, and we proclaim him, Right? says we proclaim him. For what reason? We proclaim him and his word and the truth of his word and the truth of obedience to his will, not ours, so that we would become obedient followers of Christ, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Completion in Christ is all teaching that results in your coming fully under Christ's lordship. To see your life be a walk, a walk in Christ's likeness. So the third result of our spiritual union with Christ, our uniting with Christ, is that we have been enslaved to righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Sometimes difficult, but very clear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of it. And we pray, Father, that we would be those who walk in the truth of it, in righteousness, in Christ. And Father, we give this week to you in Jesus' name. Amen.